In your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter number 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1. The subject today is wisdom from a godly woman for moms and dads and grandparents. So when you get ready to preach for Mother's Day every year, you think, well, I've got to preach something on Mother's Day, but I also don't want everybody else to just phase out on me here and go to bed and say, well, he's just talking to mothers. So I'm talking to moms, and I'm talking to dads, I'm talking to grandparents, I'm talking to the kids who listen and find out what mom and dad are supposed to be doing for you. And so I hope everybody will listen this morning. First Samuel chapter number 1, and if you'll stand as we read God's Word, we're going to read the first eight verses together, verses 1 through 8. Now, I stayed up 30 minutes extra last night learning to pronounce the words in, in verse 1 here. So uh, I hope I can remember what they are like, all right? Now, there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and an Ephrathite. And I'm sure you got a lot out of that. Amen. Who I want you to remember is one man here. His name is Elkanah. Verse 2, and he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, our subject this morning. The name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shallow. Shallow was where the ark of God and the tabernacle had been taken when the uh, Israelites entered the land in the conquest. However, they had not yet uh, taken Jerusalem, so the ark was there for about 20 years. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, and actually that means a double portion. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, and therefore Hannah wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? Why eatest thou not? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? And you may be seated. The setting of the book of 1 Samuel is during the time of the Judges. Judges is two books back. You have Ruth before 1 Samuel, and then you have the book of Judges. And so this is the setting during this period of history. If you'll look back there to Judges chapter uh, 21, it's the last chapter right before Ruth in the last verse. It describes Israel at that time. In those days, there was no king, no central governing authority in Israel. 
Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So it was a time of anarchy. It was a time of absolute lawlessness. And if you read just that 21st chapter, it would revolt you. It is awful, the violence, the perversion that was going on in Israel at that time. There was no government, no authority at all, no law enforcement. And so in this time of lawlessness and violence and sexual perversion and idolatry, a nation had forgotten God. Does that sound like anywhere you've heard of recently? A nation that has completely forgotten its heritage and its tradition and abandoned its God? Well, this man, Elkanah, though, was a godly man. But he had a flaw. He had two wives. And uh, one of them, Hannah, the Bible here we've read, says she was childless. In fact, it says that the Lord had shut up her womb. It was God's will that she not have any children at this point. And so this woman is childless. But it also adds in verse 5 there that she was her husband's favorite. He loved her. In comparison, he loved her more than this Penina, the other wife. Now, she had borne him several children. We don't know how many, but it said sons and daughters in the plural. And yet, in verse number 6, it says that she had become the adversary of Hannah. Probably, she, she was jealous of the husband's affection. And we learn something here that's a little sidebar, but it really is important. We see the evils of polygamy, or maybe I should say bigamy here, two wives. Down through history, there have been nations that tried to um, practice polygamy and bigamy, multiple wives or multiple husbands. It never has worked. In fact, in every case, it's what you see here. There's conflict, there's jealousy, there's hatred, there's conflict between the parties. It never works out. Even today, there are people proposing that we would again practice that in our history, but uh, history says that polygamy is a failure. God's plan is one man and one woman for life. We call it monogamy. One man, one woman for life. This is God's plan. In verse 7, we see that the family went up to Shiloh to worship God, and once they got there, Apparently, Penina had really been giving Hannah a difficult time, and Hannah is so upset because of her childlessness, she can't worship even. She can't eat. She is just depressed. It's a very difficult time for Hannah here. It says she was sorrowful, and in desperation, she cried out to God, Oh, God, give me a child, she prayed. And you know what? In his time, God gave her a child. That child was Samuel, one of the greatest of all the prophets in the Bible, a man who is still blessing us today as we read about him and read the scriptures that he wrote. And so I looked at this chapter one, and I found four wisdom principles, four wisdom principles that we get from this godly woman, Hannah, and Moms and dads, dads, I especially ask you, I hope you'll listen today. Don't tune me out because it's Mother's Day. This is just as much relevant. There's as much relevancy here for you as there is for the, for the women present. And number one, four wisdom principles. You might want to write them down there. There's room on your program. 
Number one is the importance and priority of children. The importance and priority of children. Verse 2, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this was a grief to her. This was a heartbreak for this lovely woman. She desperately wanted a child. She just wanted to be a mother. And you know, that's God's will most of the time for women. God's very first command was what? Be fruitful and multiply. The first thing he ever said to his people was, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to have, to have children. And so he gave women what we call maternal instincts. Now, boy, today in this gender uh, world that we're living in, you get in trouble for even saying something like that, that women have instincts that men don't have, absolutely. And we call them maternal instincts. It's the desire for a child. Why is it that little girls like to play with dolls? And why is it that little boys like to play with guns and tractors? It's the way that God wired them. It's the way that God made them. And these little girls, I remember my, my children, my girls, they, man, they had a baby doll on their hip when they were 11 years old. They were still playing being mother. And that's healthy. That's good. I encourage that. I didn't give them a car and say, now you make your choice. What, which way you want to go in life? Do you want to be a, a mother and have babies or do you want to, you know, do you want to drive a bus or something? I didn't give them the choice. I didn't give them the, the truck to play with. I wanted them to be mothers. I wanted to, them to exercise those instincts, if you will. You know, in the past, Here's a big, big, big difference in America today, and I have lived long enough to see that difference. In the past, children were treasured. Back in these days, children were even counted as wealth. Do you know that? That's why in the Bible, over and over, it'll say something like this, that he had so many sons and so many daughters, and it'll tell you how many cows and, and other things that he had. But children were viewed as wealth. Children were the parents' social security plan in that day, not the government. Children were treasured and they were valued in the past. Is it not tragic indeed that today in America, the birth rate in the United States right now for the last 10 years or so has been the lowest that it's ever been in our history and almost the lowest that it's been among the nations. We're not having children. And a nation will pay for that. When you don't have children, you don't have the economic support system for the next generation. And so the very people that didn't have the children will suffer the consequences in all probability. The birth rate is at an all-time low. And then if you turn on your television, Hollywood portrays motherhood as a form of slavery. If you'll listen to some of these feminist talk, motherhood is, is bondage. Motherhood is some form of slavery. Teaching is the idea, the theory is that children get in your way. They infringe on your career. 
that they take away your freedom to express yourself and be who you want to be. And so this feminist theory that's been around now for 25 or 30 years would tell people, no, you don't need to have children. Children get in your way. God says children are valuable to you. And you know, then you come to abortion. Abortion. And that's worse. That says that children are disposable. Unborn children are disposable. And so uh, women are being taught today, well, a woman ought to have control of her own body. I agree. And I also know that that baby is not her own body. That baby has a separate brain and a separate heart and a separate blood supply and maybe even a separate blood type and separate brain waves and a separate DNA. That baby is not your body. It's in your body. It's not your body. And it's not a tumor to be excised. So the basis of these attitudes, where's this thinking coming from? This against nature thinking, where's it coming from? What's the source of it? Well, we live in a culture that is obsessed with itself. We live in a selfish, selfish time. A time when people say their attitudes, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do including God. So I'm going to do my, my goal in life, my, my mission in life is to please myself. And let me tell you, I'll give you a good quote here. When pleasing self is the goal of life, comfort and convenience become the highest value. If the goal is to please myself, then my comfort and my convenience becomes my highest values, so I will act in, uh, consistent with that. Turn to Romans chapter 15 in the New Testament, please. I'll show you a hard truth. I'll show you a counterculture truth. Everything I'm doing right now is counterculture, but motherhood is counterculture in America, tragically today. And a hard saying, Jesus, it said in the New Testament that the people didn't listen to him because what he said was a hard saying. I'm going to give you a hard saying here, straight from God's Word, chapter 15 of Romans, verse 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Get your pencil out, underline it, and not to please ourselves. Oh, uh, that is right in the face of everything in American culture today, isn't it? The goal of life is not to please ourselves. Go on to verse 2. Let every one of us please his neighbor, others, our brothers, our sisters, for his good to edification. In other words, we ought to be thinking about how to build up. Edify means to build up. We need to be thinking how to uh, instead of pleasing ourselves, how to build up other people? Am I building up others? Is my life a positive influence upon the people around me? And you go on to verse 13, and especially this phrase, even Christ pleased not himself. The Son of God came to the earth. He created the universe. He created the earth. He was the king. He was the rightful ruler and owner of the entire universe, and yet he didn't come here to do what 
He just wanted to do. He came here to carry out a mission. You see, America today has become a very selfish, inwardly focused place. And unless you're a Christian, no, that's not, I'm not drawing the circle narrow enough. Because I can tell you the average Christian in America today, the average professing evangelical Christian, the average Baptist in America today doesn't have a clue what I'm talking about. Or if they do, they're not observing it. Go to Philippians chapter 2 with me. And let's look at the example of our Lord and one of the most famous passages here. But boy, it's something we need to reflect on on Mother's Day. Now, you see, good mothers do this. They don't think of themselves first. Good mothers are getting up in the middle of the night taking care of babies, and they're feeding children, and they're, they're doing all the things that are involved in motherhood, and they just do that because they're a good mother. It's their nature to do so. But that's not the typical philosophy being carried out today in America. And so in Philippians 2, I read here about our Lord himself, beginning in verse 4. Look not every man on his own things or his own interests. Don't be so preoccupied with yourself. But every man also, it doesn't mean never think of yourself, also says, though, that you are not so self-focused you don't think of anybody else, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. The man is the thinking process, the philosophy, the way of life of Jesus. Now, what was he like? How did Jesus think? He was in the form of God, and he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And the marginal note in my Bible says, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to. When he came to the earth, he didn't hold on to all of the prerogatives of his his deity. He was willing to turn those loose for us. And he made himself of no reputation. He didn't come as a king the first time. He didn't come as an important, powerful, political, or religious leader. He made himself of no reputation. He's stepping down from being in heaven with God to no reputation on the earth. He took upon himself the form of a servant. Will you circle that in your Bible? A servant. Jesus became a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself down, down, from God to no reputation, to a servant, to humility, and he became obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. And so he set the pattern, the model, the template for us. How am I as a Christian to think to have the mind of Christ? I'm to think of myself as living not just for me, but living for other people, to help and bless and encourage and instruct and lift up other people, to be a servant to others. The name Harrison Butker may not be familiar to all of you, but if you're an NFL fan, it is. He is the young man who plays for the Kansas City Chiefs, and uh, he's a kicker, a field goal kicker, and he kicked uh, the winning field goal in the Super Bowl this year. Long, 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 I forget how many yards it was, 50 yards plus or something. 
And uh, he's a graduate of Georgia Tech. And so when he, uh, after that, they invite him back to his alma mater to give the graduation speech back in February of this year. And uh, boy, I listened to that speech and I thought, this guy has got his thinking right. This guy understands some principles that so few people today understand. And here's what he said as he stood here at a little podium and addressed that graduating class at Georgia Tech. He said, I just happened to be blessed by God to be really good at kicking a funny-shaped ball between two yellow posts. But no matter how much money you attain, none of it will matter if you are alone and devoid of purpose. The world today is full of miserable, smart, hardworking people, but they are unfulfilled because they lack purpose. And then he said, the young people today feel more depressed, lonely, and anxious than ever since COVID. He then provided his own solution to the issue. I'm not sure the root of all of this, but at least I can offer one controversial antidote that I believe will have a lasting impact for generations to come. And then he said to them, listen, get married and start a family. You wouldn't think that would be controversial, would you? To tell a group of college graduates, get married and start a a family? Man, the internet exploded. That's how I heard about it. I mean, it went crazy. Who is this guy telling people to get married and have a family? Who does he think he is? Then he held up his left hand, and he said, I have two Super Bowl rings, but this is the most important ring in my life. And he pointed to his wedding ring and said, none of these accomplishments mean anything compared to the happiness I found in my marriage and starting a family. My confidence as a husband and father, and yes, even as a football player, is rooted in my marriage with my wife. As we leave our mark on future generations by the children we bring into the world, how much greater a legacy can anyone leave than that? And then he ended his speech by expressing how sad it is that people have been encouraged to live for themselves and have loyalty to nothing else that people today are encouraged to live for themselves and have loyalty to nothing else. Boy, I've seen that through the years. What a change. I mean, when, we, when I started this church back 53 years ago and God gave us a little group of people, and there's a whole bunch of them still here. And you know what those people, they... They were so loyal to the church and to the cause and what we're doing. Man, they'd charge hell with a water pistol. I mean, they'd run through a rock wall. It didn't matter. We were going to do something for God here. Through the years, I've watched it. In the same level of loyalty, for the most part, there are exceptions. But for the most part, it's not the same today. And they tell me that's not just here. That's everywhere across the country. Why is it? It's because we're living in a culture that's telling you to put yourself first and put the church wherever it becomes convenient for you. 
Number one principle, the importance and priority of children in your marriage. And that's applicable to husbands and wives and kids and grandparents and all of us. And number two, second principle, I won't be as long on the rest of them, maybe. I won't promise you. Number two, God hears and answers prayer. Second principle, this Hannah really believed in this answer to prayer. And so read with me verse number nine. We didn't get that far before. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk, and Eli the priest was upon a seat by post of the temple of the Lord. She was in bitterness of soul, and she prayed to the Lord, and she was weeping sore, and she vowed a vow to God, and she said, O Lord, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your handmaid and remember me and not forget me, but you will give me a man-child, she wanted a son to serve the Lord. I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. She's talking about the vow of the Nazarite, of course. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli marked or noticed her mouth. And she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. She's just lipping her prayer, but it's inaudible. And Eli thought she had been, she was drunken. And he said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put away your wine. And she answered and said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. I am pouring out my soul before the Lord. She was so emotional, so broken. He thought she was drunk. And she said, count not your handmaid for a daughter of Belial, one of the idol gods. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken. Eli answered and said, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, let thine handmaiden find grace in thy sight. And so the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. She believed that God had heard and answered her prayer. And that's really all she had in her helpless situation. Hannah believed that prayer would make a big difference in her life. Notice there in verse 13 and 14, I won't read it again, but she was so broken, so emotional, so earnest that the priest looking at her there in the crowd praying, he thought she was drunk. But she knew that God would hear her. I want to give you three things that Hannah knew that will get you an answer to prayer. People are always asking me, well, what do you have to do to get answers to prayer? I'll give you three things real, real quick. Number one, her prayer was in the will of God. Her prayer was in the will of God. If you want your prayer answered, it has to be in the will of God. And we know the will of God when God speaks in his word, that's his will. And what is his, what did God say? He said, well, be fruitful and multiply. So her desire was in the will of God. Number two, she prayed in faith. She believed that God would keep his word, that he was a rewarder, Hebrews eleven six, of them that will call upon him. And the third reason she could get her prayer answered, her life was clean. There was no hidden sin. There was no disobedience in her. She was not neglecting her duties as a wife or as a believer, as a woman there in the nation. 
She was a woman whose life was clean. She wasn't perfect. She was a sinner, of course, but she was a righteous woman, a godly woman. She understood that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. And I want to tell you today, if you'll take those three things, you'll get your prayers answered. Is your prayer in the will of God? Can you go to the Scripture and say, I know this prayer is in the will of God? Number two, do you believe God's hearing you and is going to answer you? If you don't, then, of course, that cancels the prayer. And the third thing is, have you scrutinized your life? God doesn't answer the prayers of people who are not right with Him. If there is neglect, if there's sins of omission or sins of commission, then uh, you're wasting your breath praying, my friend. The Bible gives us the formula for answered prayer. You can get your prayers answered if you'll take that little three-step thing there. And her prayer was answered. Look there with me in verse 19. And they rose up in the morning early and worshiped before the Lord and returned home. And they came to their house in Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came to pass when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived, she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I ask him of the Lord. Principle number two, God hears and answers prayers if they're in his will, if they're prayers of faith, and if the life is clean and pure before the Lord and there's nothing standing between him and an answer. Principle, what, wisdom principle number three, the power of an unwavering purpose. If you look at verse 11, her purpose was very clear. She had a godly purpose for her child. She wanted a son to raise him for the Lord. She wasn't raising him for her ego or her prestige or so people would talk about her. She wanted a son that could be used of God greatly. And so she said, a razor will never come on his head. He will be the most dedicated of the believers there in the nation of Israel. She understood something that I wish every parent in this building and every person listening to me, wherever you are, I wish you understood this. Children, though you bear the children, they ultimately don't belong to you. Children are a stewardship of the Lord. Those are God's little boys and girls that He has given to you. And like financial stewardship, where we're responsible to the Lord to give back, in the same way, we're responsible to the Lord with our children to give them back to Him. Now, I want you to really listen to me because there's something really is bothering me as a pastor. There's a whole bunch of people, even right here in our church, but it's the, it's the trend around the country. You're not giving your children back to God. You've got your own dreams, and you're trying to play out your own dreams in the life of your children in many, many cases. And you know what? You're not considering that child as a gift from God that you're to shape and form and mold for His service. What bothers me is the Lord has a need. There is a labor shortage in the Lord's work. There's a shortage of pastors. There are thousands of churches today that don't have a pastor and can't find one. Do you know that? Don't judge everything by Florence Baptist Temple. 
around this country, there's a shortage of pastors, an acute shortage of pastors. And every year, fewer men go to seminary and to Bible college to be pastors. And the missionary force is declining in America, astronomically declining, going down like that. And you know who the problem is? People who sit in the pews and work against the pastor trying to get their children into the Lord's work. Moms and daddies, and their dream is that their children make money. Their dream is that their children get involved in sports. Oh, my soul, don't even, I don't even want to approach it. It bothers me so deeply that sports is a God of thousands of professing Christians across the country today. You put it before the Lord in every way possible. And you're going to be disappointed one of these days. All our kids are not going to the major leagues. It's going to be a a, a very few who do. And, And by the way, I'm not against that. But boy, just, it just so bothers me. I told a parent not long ago at, in our school, I said, our goal is not to produce D1 athletes. Our goal is godly character and a biblical worldview. We want them to excel in athletics. Absolutely, we want to champion everything. But we don't want that to completely rob them of their spiritual life. Train up a child in the way he should go. Do you know what that word train means? It's a horticulture word. It's like a woman does with a rose bush. She trims it. She ties it up to the trellis. She waters it. She fertilizes it. She, she's like she loves that plant. And she works on that plant, works on that plant, and she trains it. There's an old saying that says something like this, that as the twig is bent, so, it will, so will the tree grow. As the tw- twig is bent, so will the tree grow. Which way are you bending the twig right now, parent? If the twig is always bent towards the world and money and power and position and, 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 and all of those things, if it's always bent that way, that's the way the child's going to go. You're shaping that child. Are you putting the right emphasis on God, his work, his church? Well, she understood this unwavering purpose. And I know that as she raised that little boy, she was saying to him every day of his life, I want you to let God use you. I don't know what he's going to do with you, but whatever it is, I'm not going to interfere. and I'm going to be encouraging you. I'm going to be pushing you gently. I'm going to be helping you lean in the right direction. Growing up, I've told you so many times, Frank and Hallie Monroe told me early on, well, Bill, we dedicated you to the Lord. We want you to be a preacher, you and Paul both, my brother. And I had every idea in the world. I was going to be a baseball player. I was going to be a musician. I was going to be a dentist. I was going to be this. I was going to be that. And they didn't pressure me, but they just encouraged me. Time to go to college. Why don't you go to Bible college a year before you go over there and get exposed to all that unbelief? And they just gently encouraged me and gave me options. I went to Bible college for a year before I went, in fact, two years before I went to a secular college. I'm so glad I did. Now, that's, I'm not saying that's God's will for everybody, but I'm telling you, mom and dad were just always gently in the background. I believe I'm standing here today because 
they bent the twig in the right direction for my life. And I hope you're doing that with your children. And number four, wisdom principle number four, persistence will always be rewarded. Don't ever give up on your children. In Psalms 127 and verse 4, it says, As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. And I picture the ancient warrior sitting by his campfire. He's got a, a, a stick, a branch. And he takes his knife and he, he, he shaves it down. He shaves the crook out of it. He puts it in the fire. He lays a rock on it to strengthen the crook in it. And he just keeps on working with it, working with it, working with it. And it had a little bow in it, but now it's coming out. And it's straight as it can be. We get the term a straight arrow. We get it from that. A straight arrow. You want your child to be a straight arrow. That when God puts it on his bow, it flies to the mark. If the arrow is crooked, it will go in another direction. And so persistence, sticking with it, every day, little by little, the Word of God and prayer and encouragement, faithful to the church, faithful to the duties that God has called you to, faithful. Persistence will be rewarded. We are to shape our children as straight arrows. First Samuel here covers a long time. Verse 7 says year after year. But in his time, God gave her a son, the son for which he was praying. And you know his name is Samuel. And I want you to turn to chapter 2 for just a second. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 18. Now he's a little older. She's given him to the Lord. And Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child, girded with a linen ephod. And moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year. And when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, she brought that gift to him. What did that little boy become? Because God was the priority. Because she knew how to pray. Because she was persistent. And because she had a purpose for him. She shaped him. He's the last of the judges. The first prophet in 400 years in Israel. He is listed in God's hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11. He anointed the first two kings of Israel, David and Saul. He wrote Judges, Ruth, and most of 1 Samuel. And in chapter 2 and verse 20, the woman who could have no children ended up having six. The woman who could not have a child, God gave her six. There's an old saying that says, God gives his best to those who leave the choice to him. Did you get that, folks? God gives his best to those who leave the choice to him. 
our heads are bowed.